Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach into the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Jared Bumpers back to the studio as we continue our conversation on my new book, Turnaround. Dr. Bumpers serves here at Midwestern Seminary as Assistant Professor of Preaching and Evangelism, and will be directing our FTC cohorts here on the campus next fall. Jared, welcome back to Preaching and Preachers. Thank you. Looking forward to discussing the, the next five principles. We've covered kind of the history of the seminary, the first five leadership principles. And so uh, if you're okay with it, we'll, we'll jump right into principle number six. I'm okay. One way or another, we're going to finish this today. So, that, um, so let's do it. That's right. Eye on the prize. Well, number six, you talk about building a team. And uh, something that I, that I think you've done well here at Midwestern Seminary is uh, hiring good people. You say at the beginning of the chapter, every hire matters. And so I uh, appreciate just the, the clarity there and the conviction you have behind that. Talk to our listeners about how to develop or how to build a team. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I want to um, just reiterate what you just what you just referenced. We do talk about every hire matters, and uh, now it's a part of the culture here. But ten years ago, it was more of a necessity than a choice. And as I t- tell the story in the book, where we were financially, we just had no money. And uh, I knew I wanted a world class team, but if you have no money to hire anyone, much less a world class team, like what do you do with that? And so we covenanted early day one to say, okay, every single position, every single opening, we have to treat this as though it is life or death. And so whether it was the, the janitor, the custodial, you know, someone in the wands crew, or a, a senior administrative position, we're going to be super intentional. And that wasn't just a, a budgetary consideration, though it was then and to some degree remains. Uh, it, it was also just the the absolute reality that who an institution is, who an organization is, and what it is, really is a sum total of those who serve there. And so many people look at a place like Midwestern Seminary and they see, you know, the Patrick Shriners, the Jason DeRoshis, the Matthew Barrett's, et cetera, these leading faculty members we have. And they assume, well, th- that, that is what the school is. That is who the school is. Those leading profs make the culture. And, and they certainly do contribute substantially to it. But many people fail to see, actually, it's the, the administrative assistant, the assistant director of student life, mm-hmm. the person working in the cafeteria or in the student center or in the bookstore. And these middle-level, lower-level hires really matter as well. And, and you have to treat each one, not just as though it's important from financial reality, but understanding that every person on the payroll, every person a part of an organization, they contribute to who that organization is and how high it will rise. The other thing I want to say we talk about in this chapter you know, a good deal is, is the fact that when we hire someone as an organization, as a church, as an institution, we do bear a moral responsibility to those we hire. Sometimes I look at churches or Christian ministries, and man, they are so cavalier about hiring and firing, and, and they'll hire people and then throw them overboard three months later. And I'm like, what, what is going on there? And then I, you begin to think, like, who would go to serve there with that sort of body count piled up? Yeah, And so I view it this way when, you know, the Jared Bumpers family or, or whomever's family is looking to move here. It's not just like that they have a commitment to us. We have a commitment to them. And as long as they represent themselves right and, and, and they, they gave us clear information and clear responses and in interview processes, if this doesn't work out in six months or 12 months or two years, we really both share some responsibility to that. And so, so these things matter. Right. Yeah. So I, you yeah. asked us specifically about um, about making these hires, and look, I, I always point people to to the big C's in ministry positions, especially. And I won't get into all these specifically in the chapter, but we talk about things like character, talk about things like calling. I mean, does this person just want a job, or is God actually calling them here to serve? We talk about things like competency. Do they actually have the skill set? We talk about things like um, 
like culture? Are they, are they a good fit here? Would they fit in well here? Talk about things like added capabilities beyond their specific skill set, the particular responsibility they have here they will fulfill. Are there other just value adds to them? Are there things they can do beyond the particular role, experiences they have beyond the particular role that would make them an, a net value add to the institution as a whole? Yeah, those are great questions for every person looking to hire someone to consider. I know everybody isn't hiring someone. So you also talk in the chapter about cherishing and, and leading a team. So I'd love to hear you just share a few thoughts on on what it means to actually, okay, once you surround yourself with the people, how do you how do you value them and then lead them? Yeah, th- again, this is such an important chapter in the book. In some ways, in some ways, it's it's one of the most important chapters in the book. And uh, you know, I named it cherish your team, not 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 lead your team or flog your team or drive your team, though I suppose perhaps some of that happens here on occasion. <laughs> but uh, I really do, and and we we work to cherish the team. That goes to everything from, from matters of compensation to do our best to care for the person and their family who serves here, to giving them a clear sense of, uh, of the vision of the school, where it's going, so they aren't merely supporters, but they're true stakeholders, uh, to, to empower them to serve and, uh, and not let them wonder, like, I'm actually on some like, secret presidential bad list. And you know, you've been in these meetings, I tell people, say, look, if you're here, you should be serving with the full confidence that you have the full confidence of the president. Right. You don't have to wonder if you're like in a penalty box in the back of my mind. You serve here. And uh, if a person missteps, which happens on occasion, then we'll deal with that clearly and candidly, and then, and then you move on. And so mm-hmm. a part of that is just building a culture that's not fear, not of suspicion, heaven knows not of paranoia, but, but a, a culture that's hopeful and cheerful and where we intentionally, we knowingly keep very short accounts so we can move forward and serve together. Yeah, that's great. We'll, we'll come back to the culture piece at the end of the final final chapters on culture. But you're, you're, the seventh principle, you talk about accountability. And so uh, that ties into the team, the team component and dynamic here. But one of the things you said that captivated me as I was reading, reading through the book is uh, you, you talked about accountability being a supreme act of love. Holding someone accountable is actually a way of loving them and ensuring that they're doing the best they can and succeeding in their role. And so um, I'd love to hear you talk about what is what do you mean when you say accountability? What do you have in mind? What does that look like? And then what are some suggestions you would have for someone who's leading or influencing others? How might they hold people accountable? Yeah, so I, there's a lot of ways we could go with this, and I'll let you even shepherd me along as to what you think would be most helpful. But um, I'll begin by saying there's a the big category of moral accountability, Okay. Everything from how we spend our time, our money, what our eyes go after, the ways we can be tempted. And so having structures in our lives that, that just helps. Again, it's not an absolute insulation, but it helps to insulate us from committing these grave moral failings. And so for me, I mean, like, I just don't have unaccounted for time. You know, I dashed in the studio you know, five minutes late here with you, Jared, and, and my morning's been accounted for. My wife knows where I was. My office knows where I've been. Uh, I, I've, been I've been working. I haven't been like someplace murky on the south side of Kansas City. Nobody really knows what I was doing you know, the morning. No, and so I just live a life w- with people who love me and, 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 and with people who know me and bring them into that as to where I am and what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. So I conversely seek to do that with colleagues here, and especially those who report directly to me. I tell them, like, I don't want to learn on Instagram, you're, you know, you're hiking the Rocky Mountains. I expect to hear that and on the front end of, hey, we're planning to take this trip. I, I don't want to know, I don't want to learn accidentally that, you know, you, you took a dalliance in Nashville last week and I didn't know. No, that, that, that's out of balance. You should be communicating with me regularly. And it's not just because of a matter of stewardship of time and resources institutionally. It's also because I love you enough to hold you accountable in that regard. The people that get themselves in trouble, it seems to me, Morally, it's very often by taking trips they don't need to take or extending them unnecessarily. I mean, if I can get in and out, I'm going to get in and out. I mean, I, I want to spend as many nights in my home and in my bed as I can. Yeah. 
And so I think ministry leaders need to be thinking that way as well. So if I see a colleague recoiling at healthy accountability, alarm bells go off in my head. I also believe that every person in ministry, and frankly, more broadly, everyone in life, they ought to be able to answer in one sentence to whom they're accountable. If you ask a pastor, like, to whom do you report? And, and they can't give you an answer. Or like, who, 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 to whom are you accountable? And there's not any clarity there. That's not a good place to be. Yep. But it's not just the personal, moral, spiritual accountability. It's also operational accountability. And so here, we, we, we have extreme ownership. I mean, we, we don't just have like floating degree programs and floating initiatives. No, we have degree programs and initiatives that have names associated with them. You're responsible for this. Uh, what do you need by way of resources to achieve the goals we're seeking to achieve? What, what are your plans to achieve those goals? And the closer we track that by way of accountability, it's not just to, you know, to squeeze the most energy we can out of employees, but it's to be in constant conversation with them about how we are achieving or not achieving those goals so that we can turn the dials accordingly and make adjustments as we need to. What some organizations do, and this is just a failure of leadership, I believe, you have a person who is, you have, perhaps they, you have programs or initiatives that, that there's no clear name attached to it, so it's all kind of floating around. Or you have a person whose name is attached to a program or initiative, but, but it's distant, there's no clear reporting, there's no periodic check-ins. And so what happens is, you know, it's kind of crickets for two years, and then some leader somewhere wakes up and realizes, oh my goodness, that, that program's failing, so well, well we're going to let you go. Well, it's not an active love. An active love is to be monitoring that program month to month. And so if there are modifications need to be made, changes need to be made, that's an incremental process, not just a guy's out working somewhere and wakes one, one day to find out a leader sawed off the limb behind him. Yeah, that's great. You covered the two, two things I think that are essential there. The personal accountability component, being accountable. You know, if you want longevity in, in ministry and to be successful, personal accountability is important. But then the institutional or in a church setting, the ecclesiological accountability and the people that work with you having having goals and accomplishing what you feel like God has designed for you to accomplish and to do, that requires accountability. And, and sometimes you talk about frank conversations in the book. And so I, I think that's super important. Yeah, look, I think we, we need to, by way of reflex, always migrate towards the light. Hmm. So I tell our people, and again, I don't mean just morally, of course that applies, but I mean in, in any part of the seminary, because some people, and perhaps many people, have their natural reflexes to say, uh-oh, my, let's say admissions, for instance, or whatever. This degree program, the numbers are soft. And so they're a little embarrassed by that. Perhaps they're scared by it. And so the instinct is to kind of go quiet and to try to, by your lonesome, solve it and fix it and hope that like, by the time someone actually reviews the numbers, then you've kind of been able to resuscitate it and get it there. But I want a culture, and we work hard to build accountability towards the opposite, that if something's soft or slow, the quicker you raise your hand and say, hey, Houston, we have a problem here, the quicker you raise your hand and do that, well, then perhaps we can, in an economic way, fix it. We can bring the best energy of the institution to look at it. And you're not just alone in an office somewhere trying to solve the problem, but, but no, you, you have a team around you helping you. And so I, I want things to naturally gravitate towards the light, not to gravitate towards the darkness, gravitate towards the light. And so we can... Assess it, fix it, Lord willing, in a timely and economical way. Yeah, that's that's great. Many many hands make light work, and so putting your eyes on that target and, and you know getting things done is is huge. So uh, number eight, moving moving on to the next one, we talk about stewardship. You talk about stewardship in your uh, in your eighth chapter, and uh, you mention uh, and you you reflect on this already. Some of the gifts early on that that helped you reach this financially stable place. But even after you reach that place, you talk in this chapter about the importance of stewarding the resources that you do have 
if every hire matters, every dollar matters. And so love to hear you reflect on, on the importance of, of stewardship and uh, even now being in a, in a healthy place institutionally. How do you think about stewarding the, the seminary's resources as far as people, time, and money? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I, I would get it a few different ways, Jared. First of all, I would say, look, for me, 10 years ago, we were so financially broke. We, we had nothing, nothing. And so those early months and even first couple of years of just trying to, you know, slog our way through to where we knew we could consistently pay our bills. I mean, not only do we have nothing, we, we, we were in arrears. We, we had, had professors calling who hadn't been paid like in two or three years, taught a class, you know, two or three years before adjunctively, and why was I never paid? I mean, that stuff was happening all the time. Contractors who hadn't been paid. And so for me, that, that was such a, a difficult season that I determined I never want to repeat this again. Like, I didn't create this. God's called me to fix it. Um, but I do not want to choose to live that again. And so that took a hyper level of focus on my part and work on my part and that of others here on the team to get to get us beyond that. So I tell people, I still I tell you know, leaders of, of Christian organizations and nonprofits especially, I said, look, I choose to think about the seminary's finances regularly because I don't want to have to think about the seminary's finances all the time. Mm. Yeah. I came, had to think about it all the time because someone had not thought about it regularly enough. And so if you'll bring periodic but, but scheduled, intentional um, um, oversight and engagement on that front, that will help you be in a position that you don't have to live, can we meet payroll this week? And you don't have to be about, you know, crisis fundraising endeavors and you know, those sorts of things desperate institutions do. And so we need to steward that well. We want to steward our people well, relationally. Um, I tell the story in the book about um, just about how, how, you know, earlier here in the, in, the, in the tenure here, we had an employee that, that clearly needed to be moved on. They didn't report to me directly. It was kind of mid-level in the seminary. And um, they didn't, again, they didn't report to me. So I, it wasn't something I was seeking to initiate. But just my distant observation was like, I, I think that we probably need to make a transition there. Well, one day, the person to whom that employee reported came to me and said, Dr. Allen, I just want to let you know, I really thought we need to make this transition here. I want to give you a heads up and, and get your support. I said, oh, yeah, thank you. I said, um, what, what, you know, what are you seeing? And, and basically, I'm summarizing here. said, like, the person is not competent. And they're just a real bear like to work with. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a bad combination. You, know, you like to work with people who are competent and kind, right? And right. if you're not going to be kind, you better be like really competent. Yeah, <laughs> right. if, you're not, if you're not that competent, you better be really kind. Yeah, hang on. But to not be competent nor kind, like that's bad. Okay, Bad combo. Bad combo. So anyway, so I, I green light it and uh, that, that transition was initiated. And uh, what I didn't know is, again, was like how much that person – had alienated like everybody on campus, other employees, mm-hmm. students here would have to interact some with that employee. And it was just like bad, bad, bad everywhere. I didn't know it. You know, sometimes you're the president, you're everything. Sometimes, but there are things you just like don't know. And so people were reluctant to kind of convey that to me. I was like, oh, well, anyway, the, the, the transition made. And it's like there are, you know, parades in the streets on campus. Folks are so grateful. Well, anyway, um, that's made. And I had in the aftermath a, an employee come to me, an elderly employee here who, who I love, who'd been here a long time, came to me and very supportive. We have a great relationship, but he was really flummoxed over that, that, that decision. And uh, he said to me, he said, Dr. Allen, look, I, I know that, that, that this person was not competent and I know that people didn't like interacting with them. But, but it seems to me like we, we, we could have avoided letting them go. It seems to me we could have hired someone over them Basically, you know, to supervise them and, and, you know, basically to do their work for them. Someone over them to supervise them. And if we hired someone over them to supervise them, then we wouldn't have to let them go. And I said this, this your colleague, I said, look, first, I just, I just would never do that. You have a festering person issue that has to be dealt with. Second of all, though, I said, but understand what, what that is. That act of charity 
would not solve the fundamental personnel problem, but it would disadvantage every other employee on this campus. I said, think of it this way. I said, right now, this is, you know, again, a number of years ago, right now for me to give our employees like an across the board 2% pay raise, then it was like $120,000. And I said, for me to hire the person over this person you're proposing I hire, by the time you look at salary and benefits, where that would have been the org chart, that was about $120,000. I said, so I, I can take your suggestion and hire an unnecessary employee to try to prop up a bad employee. And uh, oh, by the way, and penalize every other employee on this campus. Or we can make the right decision and be in a position to actually honor every other employee on this campus. And at that point, he, he kind of got it. But I think a lot of nonprofits, a lot of churches, that they that is their tendency. We must preserve the status quo at all costs. And they will make a lot of what is ultimately very bad decisions just to avoid an awkward conversation or two. Yeah, and in that situation, you end up serving the entire community better by, by addressing the, the one particular issue rather than trying to to help that one particular person and disadvantaging everybody else. So that, that's great. Uh, you talk in, in chapter nine, your ninth leadership principle is communicating clearly. And so you use Churchill as an example. I know that you love Churchill. So talk about a little bit about Churchill and, and what you think we can glean from him as it relates to clearly communicating. Yeah. So I, I use Churchill by way of illustration, not so much as we must be Churchillian, but more of as being instructive as to just the power of communication. You know, Churchill rallied his people, then ultimately the free world uh, in the face of Nazi aggression. And as uh, Edwin R. Murrow famously observed, Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. Hmm. And that's just what a great sentence, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, we're not facing Nazi threats and we're not, not Churchillian, but we should never under underestimate the power of communication. Right. Some of it is broadly to a constituency to communicate what you believe why you exist, where you're going, those big issues of conviction and mission and vision. Some of it is, uh, is to constituency to talk about needs and opportunities for, to support. Some of it is to internally to uh, the staff God's given you, the team God's given you to communicate again why you exist. I mean, organizations are dynamic. I tell people all the time, uh, seminaries are dynamic. They're not static. So every time I have an all-staff meeting, I have a different all-staff seated before me. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to sound repetitive and every time say the same thing, but a high degree of repetition is probably needed yeah. to teach those who are new and to remind those who have been there a long time. And so to communicate with them clearly, clearly, clearly. I also think, you know, just, just I share some anecdotes in, in the book in this chapter, but the power of words to, uh, to inflate or to deflate. And, um, you know, I love to see kids on campus, the kids of employees, and yeah, I love to brag on their parents to their kids. I, I love occasionally, you know, you, your father's a pastor in the state, Jared, and when he's on campus, I just love to say to him, you know, Dr. Bumpers, Jared's doing a fantastic job. I see him well up with pride. That just means a lot. And so those are small things that we can do. They go a long way to strengthen the community. What is more, though, again, conversely, working hard to be a man of his word, a man of integrity, if, if there's a concern, communicate that. Mm. And some people will like beat around the bush and drop hints and hope that someone else is picking up on it. And all you're doing is all you're doing is making the matter worse because you're not giving them the opportunity to self-correct. And and in your mind, you think like, okay, I've spoken to him three times now about not doing that, but actually you haven't. Actually, you dropped three hints that he may or may not have picked up on. But in your mind, you've talked to him several times, and so like you're getting frustrated that they're they're not responding. But truth be known, you probably haven't talked to them at all. And so having integrity with that candor that can be so redemptive and so necessary. Two things that just briefly on 
ways to communicate, so a means of communicating, mm-hmm. different avenues of communication, and then spaces, help a, help a pastor or ministry leader think through, here's some ways that I can communicate, like phone call, text, yeah, yeah, yeah. person. Right. So so the bottom line is, the more time your communication takes, the more meaningful it is. Okay? So you need your mind to kind of triage that, right? And so a, you know, a social media comment means less than a text, which means less than an email, which means less than a handwritten note, which probably means less than a phone call, which certainly means less than an in-person meeting. But everything can't be in person, right? right? But you need to kind of have a triage of how you go about doing that in your mind. No. And my goodness, be if you if listeners get nothing else of the podcast than this, get this. Be appreciative. Write a handwritten thank you note. Don't just send a two-sentence email. Communicate your appreciation. And look, we live in a generation of that just likes gratitude. I'm blown away by um at times when, when the institution may perform an act of kindness, or I personally may perform an act of kindness to someone, and how rare it is just to get back like a thank you note. And it's it's funny because it's so rare that I find myself almost inclined to like write a thank you note for the thank you note, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would say communicate intentionally, clearly, triage the situation, and know exactly what you mean to connect. If you want to pass along an update, a two-sentence email is fine. If you want to touch your heart, you probably better be knee-to-knee. Yeah, that's great. Last principle, and we're, we're crossing the finish line here. You talk about culture in the last chapter. Culture obviously is important. Bad culture can greatly hinder uh, an institution, its effectiveness. How do you? How would you tell someone who's trying to cultivate good, healthy culture? What suggestions would you give them? Yeah, I would say first of all, um, use the right phrase: cultivate. You can't manufacture it. You can't program it. When you have it, you know it. When you don't have it, you usually know it too. But it begins with, frankly, hiring the right people. I mean, if you have a a, a staff of stinkers. You can throw all the you know, donut parties you want, but you're not going to have a great culture. But if you hire people who are convictional, who are cheerful, who are hopeful, who believe in the mission of the, of the ministry, the church, the institution, you're halfway home already. Then within that, to actually point them consistently to why we exist and what, we get, what we're doing and where we're going and celebrating those wins and congratulating those people. And so we say things around here like compliments go around, concerns go up. Compliments go around, concerns go up. Most people do the opposite. They take their concerns everywhere but to the person who could actually address it, and then uh, and then and then they they forget to give the compliments altogether. And so I would say cultivate it, abide by simple principles you see in chapter ten of the book, and uh, and know that it begins with making the right hires, and then from there you can help to foster it and to steward it by issues like integrity and joy and clear conviction and a sense of vision as to where you're going. Well, that's that's the ten principles we we've uh, we finished them. Thank you for the opportunity to to come in and uh, have this conversation. I want to encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Turnaround as soon as you can. Hey, thank you, Jared, so much today. It's been a delight to reflect with you in the studio about the book and more importantly, the uh, the story God has given us here in the winds. He's been so kind to bless us with. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.